Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a horror anthology podcast by Superversive Radio, with no affiliation with any detective agency, person real or imagined, or the dark forces of Terre. It is not intended for children. Jack Morrow here. Somehow control knew just when my wrist was healed enough to send me on another mission. I wasn't planning on shamming, but I figured a day or two more of rest wouldn't hurt. I didn't feel like going near the Ozarks or Pine Bluff Arsenal, just in case. But as luck would have it, the mission read as followed. Jack, there are reports of localized time disruptions in Casey, Illinois. Meet with a local guy, investigate and uncover source of disruption. If possible, fix or destroy. Report back situation. Be quick. Time distortion is spreading and worsening the longer it lasts. As always, I took the usual gear, 1911, knives, car, trench coat, and my old friend, fire. I also took a few holy items. I don't like how much undead is popping up in my co-workers' reports. The peace was nice while it lasted. Illinois is a weird state. Like most, it has a strong disconnection between its major cities and its countryside. But the difference is the absolutely massive difference between the culture of Chicago and almost everyone else trapped there. The relationship will be described as abusive in a human context. I like to think that she'll leave him someday, but reality is rarely satisfying. Besides the ludicrous tax policy, small towns like Casey are homey and rather pleasant. Not quite the barren wastes of horizon-choking farms, but not the deathly towers and suburbs of Chicago. It's Americana. Not quite commercialized, not quite beautiful except in its peace. Casey holds several largest X in the world. The rocking chair and wind chimes are worth seeing, and the local restaurants aren't terrible. Unfortunately for them, there's a fantastic barbecue restaurant in New Baden that ruined my appetite. It has a rather drab town hall, but there are nice little things here and there, like the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, a several-story brick building that looks older than anything else. I have no clue why it was called Cumberland when it is smack dab in the middle of Casey. I assume it's some sort of Illinois tomfoolery. I was driving when the first of the skips hit me. The next point I was aware was when I had parked the car and was walking towards a man who stood in the shadow of a church. It was like this. Say you're pulling cards from a deck in order, diamonds to spades. Then someone goes from the three of diamonds to the six of clubs, 
but one after another without pause. The six of clubs was not the next card, but it was the next card pulled. Jack Morrow, I'd prefer you don't say it out loud. Tim Shaft with a C. Okay, pal, with a C it is. Tim was taller than me, but older, silver-haired. He hid most of his face in a furry beard that spilled over his chest, but the eyes were sharp. He was thin as well. The man struck me as an ascetic, a priest or scholar of something, like he was capable of strange things, but only at the whim of something I did not, could not worship. His clothing gave away nothing. Black button-up, shirt, jeans, black shoes. He didn't wear a ring, but he had the tan lines for it, and around his neck. Suspicious. He's hid his allegiances from me. The time skip happened again, three minutes after the first one. Three minutes or thereabout was the usual time pattern, except when it was not. Anything involving time travel does not follow rules. Only the whim of defied and jealous fate. Now we stood at the largest rocking chair, pretending to admire it. Across from us, a family ate outside at the restaurant. We moved and walked around them, but the scene didn't change from a strange loop. Unlike the skips, whatever time lost slipped away from me, they repeated their motions. Around them, the patrons and waitresses followed suit. American fare, burgers, fries, sandwiches were in their hands. The boy drank from a soda that refilled every ten seconds. He set it down, put it to his lips, then set it down again. His younger sister stole a fry from his plate, ate it, and then stole the same fry again. The young, blonde waitress walked past, and the mother gave her a dirty look. The father was pointing, chewing, and laughing at something his older daughter showed him on her phone. Then time skipped once more. Tim and I were eating sandwiches of medium quality. Now the family poured over a dessert menu. They were eager, undistressed by the repetition. The blonde waitress listened to an enthusiastic order for ice cream. As Tim and I sat eating our food, chocolate, ice cream, chocolate, ice cream, chocolate, ice cream, looped. So do people notice? No. They go on. Life is normal. It's an awareness trap. Once you're aware, you're doomed to notice it. I thought I'd have to tell you about it first. Marking times and so on. Tim said, I've got a knack for this stuff. It doesn't, um, fool me. Most Pinkertons have abilities or objects that give them an edge over the supernatural. And let me tell you, we're among the lowest of the paranatural community totem pole. We need it. All I've got is a good set of eyes and a lot of attitude. Punks think twice about ensorceling you when you shove a 1911 into their empty eye sockets. Tim shrugged. I'm a member of the Clockwork Cognomen. It's a religious cult. I've heard of them before. Lunatics mostly trying to do things that God did not intend for man to meddle with. More than normal, anyway. But then again, we wouldn't be humans if we listened to things like limits, or good sense, or don't eat the apple, or don't touch the ruins on the moon, Neil Armstrong, or whatever. I got on my guard. I keep a number of knives on me, as always. 
They're closer than a lover to me. Order dedicated to preserving time as God intended. I think God does that fine enough, thank you. This is the second time I've told you. The skips are affecting you. Tim walked over and stuffed a hundred-dollar bill into the waitress's pad. We walked off towards the Cumberland Presbyterian Church just a few hundred feet away. Time skipped twice. I felt the strangeness of my consciousness coming back to itself in an instant. It was a whip-snap. Suddenly, I was agreeing with Tim Shaft about something, but I didn't know any more. I looked at his bearded face and nodded. I'm so glad you understand. These things are tough for just one man. Most of my order, cult, order, works in Greece and certain places in Asia and South America, but few bother to come to the North American continent. Why? It's not old enough to have the time signatures we measure. Sure, St. Louis, some places in the Northeast and West, New Orleans, had enough history run through them, and they have a fingerprint. Uh, really, I work out of St. Louis. You and me both, sort of. The church rose above us like a monolith. It was all straight lines in class. If it were a lady, I'd call her ma'am until she told me that she was just a humble country church that needed no heirs. The windows had small stained glass patterns, and the entrances were nice and heavy. Tim entered in without a key. Time skipped. I snapped back to us climbing down a set of stairs. I decided to ask a question. So do other groups know about this place? My people? Days? The foundation for the study and containment of paranatural events? La Société des Étrangers? Surnaturals? That's, uh, that's not how it's pronounced. Uh, no. Uh, we keep this very secret. The only reason I called the paranormal Pinkertons is that I don't have any other cogs in my class in this continental timeline plate right now. So why trust me? Because you're an extreme loser with no friends. No one is ever going to invite you over for drinks, and if I'm wrong, you're still not going to tell them, because it's your nature to hoard secrets, not spread them. I didn't talk while he worked on the locks. I know I've been a loner all my life. No lover, girlfriend, or wife. I didn't know my father besides a picture, and Mom went to ground six years ago, forbidding me from trying to find her. I was apprenticed to the Shawnee, but he wasn't an affectionate type. I didn't even go to company picnics. Talking to Control and some of the other guys at times I chose, or just because Control turned off my cell phone's ability to end call or turn off speakerphone, took the edge off. I'll admit to leaving a fat tip at a diner just so a waitress would chat during the slow times. More at me than with me. I always feel the hunt. I've never lost that edge that a wild animal gets when enough bad things try to eat them. Eyes in the dark looking at me at odd corners, where the doors don't meet their jams right, or in the shadows hanging over a gargoyle's face. If I didn't know the supernatural existed, I might have thought myself crazy. Sometimes in the dark of the night, the only thing keeping me from running out to kill or be killed by whatever's waiting for me is that little fire in my heart that whispers calming things to me. Sometimes it says to run or fight 
or make them pay. I didn't trust him. At some point, he was going to try to kill me. I felt it in my bones. There we go, Tim said, clicking the final tumbler in place. He opened the door. What do you need me to do? He looked at me funny. Oh, uh, you don't carry memories between skips, I guess. That's fine. You're investigating the clockwork mechanism for tampering. I can perform repairs, uh, grease the wheels, if you will. But I need to know if someone has been here and where they are. They're still in here because the door is locked. It has anomalous properties. Y yes, it, it exists while the place is attached to exists. And this won't disappear until, well, the end of time. He led me into a massive chamber. I could see the walls at the far end. They were sort of brick and concrete medley. Iron and brass bars reached from the sky to depths, giving the whole thing a strange and discordant texture. The sound hit me next. Everything ticked, clicked, snapped, creaked, and groaned in rhythmic measure. The first few seconds were chaos. Then the patterns emerged. It wasn't chaos at all, but a massive, immeasurable machine. I walked to the platform edge, keeping an eye on Tim as best I could. I saw no bottom. At the end of my sight was the strange effect that occurs in one instance, when two mirrors are set across from each other, and you can see a million variations of yourself. I saw nothing but darkness. It was the machine that was mirrored forever, up and down, light above, darkness below. I'd gotten the feeling I'd burn if I went too high, and I did not want to go too deep. Pendulum swung back and forth. Some strange weights in a set of three counterweights went up and down, balancing as the seconds passed. Each one count brought a new change. Soon I saw chains, whips, and leather cords as wide as a four-lane highway roiling and rolling over each other. The tempo stopped, slowing. The clicks ground into noise and meaningless. Time skip incoming, Tim said. I just let it happen. When I was myself again, Tim was laughing at something I said. It made me want to shank him then and there. I'd worry about getting out later. We reached another platform. It, the stairs, and the floor we started on were all brass and glass designs that didn't so much vibrate as I stomped on it. The designs were fractal, enveloping itself and one another. Every place one would walk would have a flat surface to step on. At this level, a flute organ was playing something. It was measured, sort of distorted, like a song set to a lo-fi, low-frequency, low-bandwidth, but forced through the speakers. Tim lost his good humor. Damn thing is sick! Sick! He pounded his fist on the railing near him. Nothing? I looked around. Nothing yet. We're headed to a control room or central location, right? Yes. Unless I find a candy wrapper or the guy tracked mud in, I'm not going to be much use. Come on, it's up a flight of stairs and then the elevator. The elevator ride was uncomfortably fast. It nearly threw Tim down and I had to lean on the walls with both hands until it stopped. 
cherubs decorated the tops and sides like beatific gargoyles. The buttons were non-existent. The only thing was a screen that Tim talked to. Take us to the heart. It set me on edge. I hate the heart organ. Not for its honest work, but it keeps coming up. The children's hospital, the giant in the caves, valves and pressure, and... We arrived at the heart. Someone had built a Greek temple within the mechanism. It stood 100 feet tall, from the steps leading to the open double doors, wrought with carvings of a mountain which I suspected to be Olympus. Each of the twelve columns had a white marble statue of an Olympian in front of it, Zeus with his thunderbolt, each weapon black in their hands, Poseidon with his trident, Athena with a spear and shield, each sternly looking towards the elevator. Behind me, a pair of statues, Hades and Persephone, hand in hand, guided the elevator down with frozen gestures. Dionysus was an odd man out. I didn't recognize his design. Only by eliminating the rest did I see it. His head was a curly mass with two ram's horns reaching behind his head. His hood was up and in his hand was a scythe and a wine bottle, pouring a rain of rubies below. At his feet were heads, laughing. I wasn't sure what it meant. Maybe this place was older than the commonly known myths. When was I thinking? Of course it was. Where's Hestia? Tim was taken aback. What? I, what? Is this the sort of question you should be asking? I'm the detective. Hestia protects the sacred fires, among other duties. These are Greek gods of classical mythology. Hestia is missing, but Hades and Persephone are not. Where is her statue? Tim gave me a hard look and took a moment to think. I didn't have much time before the next skip. I'll take you to the boilers. It's a locked room. Holy. I didn't check it out the first time. We'll start there. Boilers to power the place, huh? The skip started and ended just as suddenly as the others. I felt nothing. I stepped onto the stairs and I looked out onto a stage, an amphitheater in the Greek style. It was blockier than I recalled from the pictures in the history books, less elegant or mathematically perfect. I'm not quite sure. Tim Shaft ran past me and I joined him. I whipped out my gun. What's going on? The tubes. Listen. At our feet was a set of brass tubes set in the floor. There was a pinging rumble. I swiped it with my fingers and felt it shake. We found the pressure variations in the control room, and you found the correlation to the right boiler room. The skips and loops are happening faster and faster, but not in a way we can tell. More is being done in less. We ran past the stage and into the back rooms. I can't recall the sky or ceiling or lack thereof, nor can I be sure the amphitheater was empty or that no play was performed. It was not concerned with us. Perpendicular. We jumped a small crevice and I heard gunfire. At the last second, I pulled Tim back. A bullet hung in the air and another three joined it. The bullet stopped, then pulled back. They rotated clockwise and anti-clockwise. I was sure in that moment that the bullets were flying back into the muzzle, the cases disappearing into the breech, and the bullet reloading into the magazine. I pushed him to the side. I waited. 
bullets flying back and forth, looping every 10 seconds or so. They were not hard to dodge, since I knew where they would be and where they were going. I pushed open the door, and the two of us slipped through just before another loop. A man in strange black garb gripped a sidearm, a handgun too slick and sharp to be anything in an army surplus store. His other hand held up a rod that ended with something that reminded me more of an invention out of Tesla's mind. Round, symmetrical, flashier than it needed to be, yet something that would be missing if it had no flash. I saw his hand grab something behind him, and time skipped once more. I stumbled on a stairwell behind the gaunt figure of Tim Shaft. The man in black armor, like the tactical gear I've seen on some seals, more wetsuit than uniform, held some sort of mechanical device. It clicked and pulsed, buttons and canisters twisting and pushing up and about. Tim was shouting something, but the man fired his gun into him. The man staggered, clutching at his side. I had my 1911 in hand, and I fired. I struck him square in the chest. The man stepped back. I kept firing. I could tell my bullets weren't penetrating. But the two-time World War champ kicks its target like a mule. Each sledgehammer blow drove him back. He dropped the clockwork mechanism, and it rolled away, clicking, writhing. Pumps, pistons, and gears almost acting like legs, causing it to skitter about on the floor like an insect. The man kept backing up, even when I ran out of bullets. I loaded another magazine. This might call for knife work, and a man in a wet suit that can shrug off bullets might not be so impolite to Mr. Bowie. I shot him again, throwing off his aim, and felt a bit of steam billow around my coat. With my magazine's last bullet, the man took one more step back. His heel fell down and his body with it. There wasn't a sound from the man. Then an instant later, I heard the flushy crunch of a body being thrown into a grinder. The bone snapped. The black wetsuit tore with a ripping noise, more like a thousand-page phone book being torn than any fabric I've heard tear. I didn't look. I picked up the mechanism as Tim hobbled over to me. I didn't like the look in his eyes. How about you stay away from me? I don't know where this goes, but we can put it back. He was staggering from the blood loss, but his hands clenched and unclenched. I didn't have time to reload the 1911, so I slid it towards the staircase and pulled my bowie knife. No surgery, this. The mechanism was small enough for me to put in my trench coat pocket. I kept my eyes on Tim, but the momentary loss of concentration gave him enough to slip into my knife's reach. I'm going to have to work on that. He clenched with me, arm to elbow. It's not the machine. Damn it. You think I'd let anyone walk away after what they've seen here? You think some time cop wannabe trying to stop World War I by killing Gavrilo Princep or preventing Emperor Aurelian getting stabbed by his generals was going to win? That time can be mastered by anyone. You think you can pry the secrets of Mr. Pinkerton from time's unbreakable brass grip? The man raved. He was losing blood. I was not. He was scholarly. I was trained. He struggled with my knife hand, and his own pulled out a thin blade from his belt. A letter opener. 
in his state half mad, even a man like him could do damage to me. I sent him into the grinder with an old Shawnee wrestling trick, bending him down, grabbing him in the waist, and throwing him at his center mass. He grappled with my coat, and I felt him grab the writhing mechanism in my pocket. This time it wasn't a stumble, and his momentum took him over the edge, the lip, and the first set of grinding teeth. I pulled back, breaking his grip on the trench coat. I don't know what's going on, and I'm not going to die, confused for nothing. The hole below was a cyclone of blades, almost like a jet turbine. The blades ground and slashed each other. Tim was screaming. I didn't see the blood until I lost sight of his body. The silver metal cutters flowed over one another, acting as the net of a trap or the web of a Chinese finger trap. It was a maw. Below my feet were the teeth. The mechanism fell through, his hands holding it like a mother holding her child above water, cut off at the wrists and fell. The vast base above and below shook, rolling left and right. The brass columns vibrated, tore from the walls. Two searchlights, blood-red and roving, burst up, searing the wooden stone they passed through. The whole tower groaned from top to bottom, and the decorative gargoyle statues started to twitch. I ran for the stairs I came through. This time, the skip oncoming felt sickly, hungry, like it was trying to eat my time, my very being. Each step took too long. My hand motions as I plucked up my grandfather's 1911 were exaggerated, lengthening and lengthening until the 1911 was both miles away and at my feet. I screamed, and the sound reverberated back and around me as if I was in a bell. Then I felt something pull itself up behind me. The tension snapped. I woke up in my car, staring at the fence of the parking lot. I gripped the wheel, and the next second, I threw open my car door to vomit. There were no more skips. I'm calling the case. I'll put my notes in Springfield, Illinois, Box 17. Jack Morrow, out. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a podcast distributed by Superversive Radio, licensed under an attribution non-commercial share-alike international license. This episode was written and performed by Ben Wheeler. Ben Wheeler edits, directs, produces, and herds cats. Visit us on Facebook. Read articles on SuperversiveSF.com. And wherever podcasts are distributed, you'll find us. Contact us through Twitter at Pinkerton's Ghosts or email us at Pinkerton's Ghosts at gmail.com. No apostrophe. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next one. <laughs>